So take James chapter 2 and stand to honor the reading of this small epistle and remain standing for a moment of prayer. Chapter 2, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac with his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Father, as we come tonight and we try to understand, to really understand that James and Paul are not at odds with one another, I pray that our people would see that tonight. I pray that Your Spirit would illuminate our minds tonight Stir our spirits and our hearts and provoke us, Lord, to have works that adjoin our faith, not to save us, but because we have the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit alive in us and moving us toward holiness and righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's message was A Light Faith Will Not Save You. And if you have your bulletin, you can see that tonight, the title of tonight's message is Deeds and Creeds Will Not Save You. The whole, the whole paragraph of 2, 14 through 26 goes together. But it's too big to handle, to really handle in one setting without doing injustice to some of the text. I'm not sure that it can be handled really well in two settings, but we're going to try. The point of the two titles was to tell you what will not save you, what you, what you don't need, don't misunderstand. Uh, when I was a drill instructor in the army and we got new soldiers in on the bus, they, they would always go to the reception station first, and that's where they get their hair cut, and they get their civilian glasses traded for military glasses, and they get all of their uniforms, and they get all of the things that they need, and then they ship them over to us, and they always come the same way, bald and smelling like mothballs. And they always had, inside of their duffel bag, they always brought certain things from home. It, it never failed. They were told to not do it by their recruiters. They were told to not do it in the reception station, but they always did it. So the first thing that we always did when we got them off the bus, after we gave them a nice warm welcome to Fort McClellan, Alabama, with a smile on our face, we'd get them in a nice big double arm length formation, we'd have them take their duffel bag and unhook it and turn it upside down and dump it and spread everything out. And then we would have another soldier take a garbage can and he'd walk behind me and I'd take my boot and I would touch it and say, contraband, 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 you don't need that, you don't need that, contraband, contraband. When it was said and done, we'd have a garbage can full of Sudafed and Vicks cough drops and comic books and pocket knives. We'd have all of this contraband. Now, they thought that we threw it away, but what we actually did was we would try to separate it and keep it for them so that when they were done, they could go back through the pile and get their own stuff back. We never took it or kept it or whatever. What was the point of doing that? The point of that was to say, you don't need this stuff. In fact, there was a saying that said if the army wanted you to have a wife, they would issue one. What we said to them was, we'll give you everything that you need. 
And anything more that you need, you get from us. And we'll make sure you've got everything that you need. You don't determine what you need. We determine what you need. And we promise you, all of your needs will be met. Well, the point of these two messages is to say this. You don't determine what saves you. God determines what saves you. And you don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. And so what James is doing is he's saying, take your duffel bag of faith and dump it out, and then he's walking through and saying, contraband, 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 you don't need that. And except for unlike us nice, kind, smiling, warm, drill sergeant kinds who would give the contraband back, James says, get rid of it. You don't need it. A light faith will not save you, and tonight's message is, deeds and creeds will not save you. Now listen, don't take that farther than it's intended to mean. Some people take that to mean that, well, then that means we shouldn't have any creeds. The Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the, or the, or the Athanasian Creed. No, 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 hold on, don't misunderstand. It's not saying they're not valuable. It's not saying they're not useful. It's saying they don't save you. The Gospel saves you. But let me tell you something. The Bible has a whole lot more to it than the Gospel. To say, I've heard some people say, I don't preach nothing but Jesus. Well, then you don't believe in 2 Timothy 3.16. That all Scripture is profitable and inspired and useful. All Scripture. And not all of Scripture is the Gospel. You tell me where the Gospel is in the Song of Solomon. You can look tonight and you'll see what I mean. It doesn't mean that it's not valuable. It's just not equally valuable, all right? All things are not equally valuable, although they're all valuable. So what I want to do tonight is I want to pick up where I left off. And I'll tell you that I've, I'm almost going to come into the pulpit and apologize for shortchanging you because we have the Lord's Supper tonight. But you know what? I'm not going to do it. It's too important of a text. We're just going to work through it. We're going to walk through it and we're going to get it all. And if we go over, I'm sorry. But it's too important of a text to shortchange. This morning, this morning, I talked to you about uh, why Paul, uh, why, why I didn't believe that Paul and James were at odds with one another. You remember that? I talked to you about that this morning. And this evening, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build on what I gave you this morning, all right? And then we're going to look at the four illustrations that James uses himself. Uh, tonight's aim is a warning about holding on to deeds and creeds as your spiritual lifeline. Deeds and creeds. Let me define that just for a minute. Deeds and creeds. Meaning that you're accepted before God because of what you do. That's your deeds. Or you're accepted before God because you have an orthodox creed. Well, I believe that God is one. <laughs> Look at James 2.19 and tell me that's your creed, okay? Or I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Amen, you should. It's in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that you're saved. Or I believe in the doctrine of election or whatever it is. Deeds and creeds do not save you. It doesn't mean that there's not a place for them in Scripture, but that if that's what you're holding on to for salvation, then you've missed the point of the Gospel and the Scriptures. We get that again from 2.19 and other places as well. Well, what I want to do right now, though, is I want to build on what I gave you this morning first, okay? This is good stuff for understanding James and Paul. I told a couple of people tonight, I've worked on this text for four or five years, to be honest with you, because I'm a sovereign grace, reformed guy, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I am convinced, I drew up a, I drew up a crest of what I would like to see for our church, adopt as a crest, and I'll tell you that in the crest I put five little tulips. And if you know anything at all about my theology, you know why there's five little tulips. There are tulips for a purpose, and there's five of them for a purpose. Okay? I believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is my absolute sole fide confession, my Reformation confession. And with that kind of a confession and conviction, you come to James chapter 2, and I'll tell you what, you better have an answer. And I don't mean make one up. You better have an answer. 
And so for years I've worked through this text because it's not one of those things that I think that we can just say, oh, here it is. Okay, I got it. I think it's one of these things that it's like, it's like seasoning for beef jerky. You don't put seasoning on a beef jerky, then put it in the oven and slow bake it and it tastes good. If you want beef jerky to taste good, you've got to season it and let it marinate. Everyone knows that the best steaks are those that are marinated over time. The best steak I've ever ate was not at a restaurant. It was at the Stegner house because it was marinated over time. Good marinade over time. Well, sometimes that's how we understand Bible scripture. So let me give you some marinade for understanding. This morning I gave you two reasons why James and Paul are not in opposition. Let me review them for you. Number one, a presupposition of infallibility. James and Paul are not, in, are not in opposition to one another because of a presupposition of infallibility. If you think that James and Paul are contradicting to one another, then you do not believe in the infallibility of the Scriptures. I do believe that. The second one that I gave you this morning was a right understanding of the context of the audience explains the tension. When you understand that Paul was writing to unbelievers that were thinking they could be saved by grace and you understand that James was writing to believers who thought that they were saved and didn't need works, then you begin to get some, some context of the terminology. Well, tonight I want to give you two more reasons why I'm not, I'm not, I'm not alarmed by the tension between James and, and Paul. And then I want to conclude by unpacking the four illustrations that he gives in the whole paragraph. See, that's a lot to do, isn't it? Picking up from the first two reasons that I gave you this morning, a presupposition of infallibility, and understanding the audience, reason number three why I don't have a problem with James and Paul. Reason number three why I'm not alarmed. It's because of the fact of the whole New Testament affirms the proper place of works for the believer. See, some people get all upset about James because he puts such an emphasis upon works. I don't know if you've picked up on it or not, but the whole New Testament emphasizes the proper place for works. If you're the kind of Christian that's lacking Christian works in your life, you have a great reason to be alarmed of the genuinality of your faith. Listen to some of these examples. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God saved you for the purpose of doing good work. So if you're not doing, excuse me, Christian work, you have reason to be concerned. Or Titus 2.14, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, listen to this, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. You know what that means? It means that you're not only a Christian who has good deeds, you're a Christian who is eagerly looking to do something for the name of Christ, good deeds. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your, anyone know? Good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, be mercies to be to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There is not a membrane separating the convictions of James from any of the New Testament teaching about the necessity of good works as a mark of our union with Christ and, and as fulfilling our obligation to our neighbor and as our submission to our Redeemer's commandments. It's taught... It's taught by every other writer in the Bible. But you know what? Not everybody understands this evangelical truth. In fact, in one American Baptist college, in a handbook for their school, 
It says, quote, any teaching that demands a change of conduct toward either God or man for salvation is to add works or human effect to faith. And this contradicts all of Scripture and is a cursed message. Huh. I don't believe so. The believer mentioned by James 2.15 who ignores his starving, freezing siblings might be a hard, might give a hearty amen to that statement, but it's scripture itself that demands a change of conduct if anyone professes to be in Christ Jesus. There's to be a change in the way that we relate to others. Christian works are not a contributory offering to purchase our redemption, but evidence that we have been purchased by a redeemer. I don't have a problem with James and Paul talking about works. The whole New Testament says there ought to be Christian works in your life. There ought to be kindness, mercy, forgiveness, love, compassion, generosity. All of those things that the Bible talk about over and over in the book of Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. There ought to be those things that exhibit, that are exhibited in our life because we have been born again. There should be a hunger for the things of God. The Bible says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. We should be longing after Jesus Christ. We should be longing into His Word. The fourth reason why I'm not alarmed. Remember, I have a presupposition of infallibility. All right? I don't have a problem with James and Paul's talk about works because all of the Bible talks about works. That's the one I just covered. Now do we come to the final one. What's the final one? Why I'm not afraid or why I'm not having a problem with James and Paul's apparent tension? Because I understand how James uses his terms. As I've studied the book of James over and over and over, I've come to realize that James uses terms just a little bit differently than Paul does. There's three terms that you need to understand. You understand how James uses these terms? You'll understand the book of James. Let me give them to you quickly. It's the term faith, the term justify, and the term works. Real quickly, how does James use the term faith? When James uses the word faith here, he means an intellectual assent. An intellectual assent which has no effect upon conduct. That's what he means by faith. That's not the way Paul uses faith. That's the way James uses faith. Even demons have an intellectual assent, James says in James 2.19. When the Apostle Paul uses the word faith, he's talking about an attitude of the entire man by which his whole life is entrusted to Christ. So the faith James condemns is not the faith that Paul commends. The faith that James condemns is the faith that says, I agree up here. But that's all it does. I, un I know it. I agree with you. You and I are kindred brethren because I believe the same thing you believe. That's the faith that James condemns. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. James says, you have faith, I have works. James says, you believe God is one, you do well. The demons believe those things. Let me tell you something. The demons have better theology than most professing Christians today. They believe that Jesus, they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity when confessing Christians today don't believe it. They said, Jesus, thou son of God, have you come to torment us before our time? They believe in the doctrine of eternal hell. Have you come to torment us before our time? What do they mean by that? Have you come to put us in hell before it's our time? They believe in hell when half the church today didn't believe in hell. The demons have a right view of God. They, full, they are fully aware of the deity of Christ and the infallibility and inerrancy of Scriptures. That's the way that James uses faith. What about the word justify? I think this will be exceptionally helpful to you. When James uses the word justify, man is justified by works. When James uses the term justify, he's using it in the sense of vindicate. Vindicate. 
Not in the same way that Paul uses it. When James talks about someone is justified, they're vindicated by it. Right? The works of a person like Abraham or like Rahab vindicated his or her claims to believe in God. Their conduct showed that they truly had faith in God. Jesus said on one occasion, listen, wisdom is justified by her children. That's what He said in Matthew eleven nineteen. Now, we don't need to brag up the importance of wisdom. It's vindicated by all those who live wisely. When Paul uses the word justify, get this, this will help you greatly with Paul and James. When Paul uses the word justify, he uses it in the sense of declaring someone to be righteous. Thus, that whole sermon series, how can a man be just before God? The term just means righteous, accepted, holy. When James uses the term justify, he uses it in the sense of demonstrating that a person is a genuine believer. He uses the term justify in the sense of saying evidence of genuine faith. Vindication of their testimony. Thomas Manton says this, In Paul's sense, a sinner is absolved by being justified. In James's sense, a believer is approved by justified. Do you get the difference? Again, Paul to the lost, James to the believer. Paul says that justification is your approval before God. Your, I'm sorry, your absolution before God. For James, your justification means it is evidence of your faith. It's a very important, and it'll come back to focus on this in just a few minutes when we look at the examples. Keep that in mind. Very important. That will help you a great deal. In fact, when you read the word justify in the book of James, just for clarity purposes, you might even, enter, you might even insert in that, as you say it out loud, vindicated. Because that's what he means. Vindicated. Proven to be what they said. When James commends, when James commends what he refers to as works, he's speaking of those actions in the lives of the Christian which spring up from a new life in Christ. Paul's in total agreement with James. He says that no man can inherit the kingdom of God without such works in Galatians 5.21. But Paul also is concerned with a massive problem that James does not deal with in this letter. Jewish reliance upon the works of the law, works done by human sweat intended to get people into heaven. That's what Paul's concerned with. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that's what Paul's concerned with. About a man saying to God, Well, God, you should let me into heaven because look what I did. My good outweighed my bad. That's not at all the way James is talking about works. That's not the way that's the way of salvation. So James is simply saying that the whole Bible teaches about works. He has some special emphasis of terminology. So what he gives us is four examples of what he means. Now to get the four examples, we've got to back up and cover the whole paragraph. That's why I said to you the whole paragraph is, it, it comes together. Because see, when we understand the terminology and how to understand James and Paul, now we come to the whole paragraph and we can say, let's look at the four illustrations. We'll move through them quickly. The first one is hyperbole. We looked at it already this morning in verses 15 and 16. The first example is hyperbole, right? You know what hyperbole is, right? Jesus used the same kind of literary device. Hyperbole is whenever you, you make a, an, an over-exaggeration. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's hyperbole. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole. If you notice a speck in your brother's eye where there's a log in your own eye, that's hyperbole. Verses 15 and 16, James uses hyperbole to make his point. 
The point that I already made this morning is that faith that does not affect change in your behavior is worthless. And that's exactly what James says in verse 17. Look at what he says. He says it in verse 17. He says it in verse 20. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Look at what he says in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's the point. He gives a second example in verse 19. It's the example of irony. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. You can have an orthodox theology and still be damned to hell. Do you know that? You can have an orthodox... When I say orthodox is a good term, I hear some people worry about the term orthodox. Neo-orthodox is not a good term. That's, Bart, that's Karl Barth's theology. Orthodox is a good term. You can have an orthodox theology and still go to hell. Let me tell you something. Do the demons have an orthodox theology? Do they believe correctly about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Yes, they do. Where are they going? Straight to hell. You can believe all the right things about God and go to hell, folks. It's not just believing right. You believe that God is one. You believe in the oneness of God, James says. You do well. An irony. It's, isn't it ironical that you can have a right theology and still go to hell? The late Ernie Reisinger, Southern Baptist pastor from Florida, great man of God, great man of God, was, a founder, was, was one of the founding fathers of the Founders Movement. Um, I had a chance to, to dialogue with him on the telephone a couple of times as he gave me some direction as a pastor. He died about a year ago. In one of his books, this is what he said concerning this text. He said, A man may believe all the truth contained in Scripture so far as he's acquainted with it. Indeed, he may be familiar with far more truth than many genuine Christians. And as his knowledge may be more extensive, so his faith may be more comprehensive. He may go so far as Saul of Tarsus had. Although he believed all the Scriptures before his conversion, Saul's faith was not saving faith. Consider also Agrippa, to whom Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. In Acts 26, 27. But such faith did not save him. Such faith did not save him. You can have all of the right faith. You can have all of the right theology and still be an unregenerate lost sinner. How little theology did the dying thief possess? He didn't possess much theology, did he? He said to the other guy on the other side of Jesus, Stop cursing him. You and I deserve to be here. He doesn't. Then he looked at Jesus and he said, Remember me when you get to your kingdom. You know what his theology was? I believe you are who you said you were. I believe that. Will you, will you, will you give grace to me? He didn't have much time to have a theology class, did he? Consider that versus all of the theology that Saul of Tarsus had before he was converted. Saul of Tarsus had a great deal of theology. Let me tell you something. I love theology. I am a student. You've been to my library, you know that I'm a reader. I love to read and I love to study. But I don't make, I don't, I don't, I don't think for a moment that just because a man doesn't have a great number of volumes in his home that he can't have good theology. But I want to tell you this, ignorance is no excuse either. God doesn't, God doesn't bless you because you're ignorant and ignorant and getting ignorant every day. There ain't nothing to brag about. My Bible says study to show yourself approved. You ought to do the best you can with what you've got. The other day, my son is going to take a spelling test, and I made a deal with him that if he got a hundred on the spelling test, I'd take him to the skate park. You know what? He worked, and he worked, and he worked. He worked all weekend long. Worked hard. I'm, I'm kind of boasting on my little boy here just a little bit. Worked hard, but I'm going to tell you what happened, see? He, he's the only boy in his class that got a hundred on the spelling test that day. But I want to tell you what, before he ever came home, Lydia wanted to go to the skate park too, so she was pulling for him. You know, she's walking around behind him. Study your spelling words, man. Let me help. 
I want to go to the skate park too. So before he got home the other day, Lydia said to me, if Sethy didn't get a hundred on the spelling test, does that mean we can't go to the skate park? And I said, we're going either way. He said, she said, why? And I said, because he tried. He worked hard. That's all that mattered to me, see? I wanted him to get a hundred, but you know what I wanted more than that? I wanted him to try. Let me tell you something. You might not all ever become theologians. You might not ever know as much as I know. You might more, know more than I know. God doesn't measure you according to me. You know what God wants from you? God wants you to give your best. That's what God wants you to give. He wants you to give your best. You might not get a hundred. You might never get a hundred. But you know what? You keep trying to get a hundred. That's what matters. That's the point that matters. It isn't how much you know, it's that you're striving to know more. And it isn't not, uh, not only what you know and what you're striving to know, it's what are you doing with what you get. It should be producing change in you. It should be molding you into the image of Christ. You should be becoming more of a forgiver and more of a lover and more of a knower and more of a doer. It should be provoking in you that you become more and more in the image of Christ. Less of you and more in Him. John the Baptist said, I must go away. I must become less so He can become great. That's what all of our pleas should be before God. It's not about, not about what you know. It's about what are you doing with what you know. That's what it's about. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says. It isn't just believe in your head, it's believe in your heart. Now, how does the faith of a demon differ from saving faith? If a demon can have genuine theology, but not be saved, what's the difference between him and me? Or him and you? In mere sin of understanding accompanied by any affection for the Lord Jesus, he understands, he understands truth, but he has no affection for Jesus. That's a demon's faith. You understand truth, but you have no affection for Jesus. It's about Jesus. We sang the song tonight. Oh, all about Jesus. We sang that song tonight. You know what? That's as good a theology as you can get. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If your theology isn't producing a love for Jesus, then it's not good and it's not working. If your Bible reading isn't producing a love for Jesus, then it's not good, it's not working. If your church attendance is not producing a love for Jesus, then something is awry. All right? A demon doesn't have a love for Jesus, even though he's got a right thinking pattern. All right, he's, he's got a faith without repentance. Our faith ought to be with repentance. He has a faith without love. A demon has a faith without holiness. He has a faith without a hunger for God. He has a faith without reliance upon the merits of Christ. They believe against their will, longing that they were not forced to believe. We believe because God has granted us belief. They envy sinners who spend their lifetimes without God in their minds. Their faith lacks any influence of the Holy Spirit. Don't make the mistake of having a mere demon's faith. What some of you need is a regenerate... What some of you need is regeneration, not another Bible study. The third, the third example of genuine faith comes in verses 21 through 24. Abraham's offering up of Isaac at Mount Moriah. So he gives a... He gives a hyperbole. He gives an irony. Now, I want you to notice what he does now. He swings the pendulum. Let me just cover these for you real quickly because we've got to take the Lord's Supper. Let me just cover them real quickly. This is good stuff, though. You've got to see this. He goes from Abraham, the king of the patriarchs, to Rahab, a woman prostitute. And he says that both of them have the same kind of faith. And both of them were justified. Remember what I tell you? How, how does James use the word justification? What does it mean? Vindicated. Evidenced. How was Abraham evidenced? By what he did with Isaac. How was Rahab's faith evidenced? 
by what she did with the spies, Joshua chapter 2. Do you see that vindication? You see, I didn't just make that up, see? That isn't just some slick way for me to get rid of my tension. Let me tell you something. We don't have time to go there. I wish we had time to go there. We don't have time tonight. But you write this down. Let me show you in your Bible. Look in your Bible in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Listen, any of you Bible, Bible, Bible hounds, you Bible beavers, your, your antenna ought to be up right now. Your ears ought to be perked up like a deer who hears crackling of the, of the leaves in the fall. You ought to be, you ought to be perked up right now. You know what? That isn't when Abraham was justified. That's Genesis chapter 22. Abraham was justified 38 years before that. Abraham was justified in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 before Ishmael was born and before Isaac was born when he was 75 years old, when God called him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he has a, a theophany with God in Genesis 15. And it says that Abraham believed God and he, and he was reckoned righteous. That's when Abraham was justified Pauline justification, okay? But then in Genesis 17... You got some time later that Ishmael was born. Alright? And now we get to Genesis 22 and Ishmael is 13 years old. We know that, I, we know that, we know that, uh, we know that, uh, Isaac was born when, when Abraham was about 100 years old. 99 conceived, born about 100 years old. We know that Ishmael is 13 years old whenever he takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. So we've got 20, we got 38 years from the time that he was justified, Genesis 15, to the time that his actions of Isaac on Mount Moriah come about. But notice what James does. He's clever, isn't he? Notice what he says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son the altar. That isn't the justification of salvation. That's the justification of vindication. Wasn't Abraham our father's faith proven to be true by what he did on Mount Moriah? Doesn't that just take all the pressure off? Don't you just go, wow, I get it. I get it. Isn't that good? I mean, it ain't for me. That's just the word. Isn't that good? I don't know about you, but when I got it, I said, man, that's good. You know what? It wasn't just Abraham, though, was it? Well, we could go back and look at all of that. We don't have time because i got to go through one more and then we got the Lord's Supper. But you know what his final illustration is? His final illustration is of Rahab. What a contrast. I mean, what a contrast for James to go from Abraham, this massive figure in Scripture, to Rahab, a little bitty player in Scripture. What a contrast for Abraham to go from the father of the faith to a Gentile prostitute. Do you know that Rahab became one of the women in the lineage of Jesus? Do you know that? You know what? When someone tells you that God did not save Gentiles into the New Testament, all you've got to do is say, what about Rahab? That's all you've got to do. What about Ruth? I mean, come on, man. Don't you read your Bible? Read your Bible. you got two women in the lineage of Jesus that were Gentiles. Don't tell me God didn't save Gentiles in the Old Testament. God hasn't never been about a blood race. God's always been about a spiritual race. That's why Paul says all of Israel is not Israel. It's about the people of God in the Spirit, not the blood that flows through your veins. That's why he says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that means anything. It's faith working through love. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. What a contrast. You know what's, you know what's beautiful about Rahab? Let me ask you this. Who do you think that your faith most resembles? Abraham's faith or Rahab's faith? I'll just help you out. It's Rahab. First of all, you're a Gentile, just like she was. You know what? God spoke directly to Abraham. I'm not saying, I'm not taking anything away from Abraham. 
Okay? But Rahab only heard about God through the testimony of others. God ain't never spoke to me except through His Word and through others, through circumstances, and through, I believe, my psyche, my conscience, my heart. We use that terminology. But I haven't never seen a vision like Abraham saw. I didn't get to offer a sacrifice up whenever the angel of the Lord and two other angels came along before he discovered Sodom and Gomorrah. I didn't get to go into a deep sleep and see the power of God come down and eat up my offering. I didn't get to have any encounters with God like that. God didn't come to me and say to me, Charlie, you're going to be a father of a son. He's going to father a multitude of nations. But God did that to Abraham, and Abraham believed God. But you know what? God didn't do that for Rahab either. Rahab just heard. Read the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, where she says, We heard about your God. She had more faith than children of Israel. You know, she said, What took you so long? Man, I've been waiting on you guys. Forty years I've been waiting. My mama used to set me on her lap and tell me about what God did. You know what? Abraham got to see God face to face in a theophany. Rahab was not there to see the Red Sea parted. She heard about the Red Sea that was parted. God told Abraham that he would inherit if he followed him. Rahab believed in an eternal inheritance because somebody else told her there was one for those that followed the God of Israel. You know what? We got a lot in common with Rahab. I hope. I hope. Because what's most in common that we should have with Rahab is not that we're Gentiles, but what should be most in common is is that we've believed what we've heard and it affects change in our behavior because that's what it did for Rahab. Let me ask you a question tonight. Has your faith affected any change in your behavior? Let me ask you a better question than that. Does your faith continually affect change in your behavior? Because it should. Because James would say to you, you have faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. We should be able to say, not boastingly, not arrogantly, not patting ourselves on the back, but we should be able to say this, I have genuine saving faith in nothing but the blood of Christ, and here's the evidence of that faith in my life. If you don't have that faith, then I encourage you to pray and receive that faith. Receive Christ. Receive the righteousness of Christ, which goes from your head to your heart and is evidence in the way that you live. 